You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Good morning. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the elders here at Gospel Community Church. If we haven't had a a chance to meet yet, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, It's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. We're actually continuing as a church through a series where we've been examining Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in a sermon series entitled Live. And so we've been looking at, at some of the exhortations that Jesus is giving in the Sermon on the Mount and looking at how it applies to our lives, how we now live as Christians, as, as followers of Christ in this life. So I'm picking up where uh, Rick left off in Matthew 5, verse 6. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and open up and follow along, I know it's only one verse, it's not much to follow along with, but if you, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back of the room, and there's actually, if you don't, uh, well, if you don't own a Bible, please absolutely take one. It's great to have a physical copy of the Bible. That's a gift from Gospel Community Church to you. And if not, if you don't feel like going up and grabbing one, I know I personally use a Bible app on my phone when I follow Rick, so I can always, you know, look up the Greek and make sure he's not making any mistakes or anything. I'm just kidding. We won't, we won't get into the whole blessed thing. Um, no, I'm just kidding. For those of you that have been following along, you know the, the conversation that Rick brought up last week about our little discussion over blessed. I actually made a joke. I I told Rick I was going to spend about 20 or 30 minutes unpacking that word in my sermon. And he's like, oh, that sounds good. He's like, is 20 or 30 minutes going to be enough, though? Yeah, so there's Bible apps, version, Olive Tree, Logos. If you're more comfortable with following along with your phone, please pull that. It's great to see the word. There there is a call in the Bible uh, for obviously pastors, elders to lead people, to deliver them the word, but there's also a call on the people to be listening to what the the elders are saying to the people, to hold them accountable, make sure that they're not distorting the truths of the gospel and and delivering faithfully the word of God to their people. Paul talks about people who accumulate false teachers that are, they sound good to the ear. And so there is a little bit of a charge, even on the congregation, to be holding their elders accountable to the word of God. So I I highly encourage you to follow along in the word with us. Now, if there's one thing when examining Matthew 5, 6 that I just love for us to leave here today thinking about, one thing to hold on to, nothing too complicated, uh, something we can think about throughout the week and chew on and digest on, is this. Hunger is a sign of health. Hunger is a sign of health. Let's read verse 6, Matthew 5, and we'll dive in from there. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. God, thank you for this space where where we're able to come and worship you through songs, through the reading of your word, um, I pray that as we examine this verse, we would, we would look and examine what it means to be hungry for, for your righteousness. I pray that you, you'd fill us up with hope for the satisfaction that you deliver to your people who long for it, who desire for it. And for those of us who don't, I pray that you would open our eyes to righteousness uh, and, and pray that you would give us a desire for it, that you would help us grow towards that. I pray that you would help us live into the righteousness you've given us as we go throughout this week, God. We love you and thank you for imparting this righteousness to your believers. Uh, There's nothing we could have done to earn it, God. And we give you all the praise and the glory for what you've done. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through 
just the last couple verses of Matthew 5, um, the, these blessings that Jesus is talking about, as we looked at the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek, even as it's been said in the previous weeks, it can be kind of hard to see, like, well, how are these blessed conditions to be in? If you're mourning, I don't see really what, what's good about this. If someone's meek or if they're poor in spirit, like, what is to say about this that is blessed? And, and Brad and Rick have done a good job of unpacking some of that stuff over the last couple of weeks. Now, especially in Christian culture, if you've, if you've kind of grown up in the church or you're familiar with the Bible and Christianity, to say having a hunger and thirst for righteousness, though, I mean, that, that's, this is more of a positive state to be in. So there's a little bit of a transition happening here now. I mean, if you desire to be right with God, uh, this is better than mourning, for example. This is kind of a, a good thing. And if you're a Christian, I would hope that you, you think righteousness is a good thing. Therefore, desiring it is also good. But as I was preparing, I wanted to, I wanted to briefly touch on what, what would you say about those who don't hunger or thirst for righteousness? There's, there's a certain people that Jesus is here talking about. Well, who would fall outside of that category? And as I was studying, I, I thought of two different kinds of people who would fall into this category, those who don't hunger, those who don't thirst for righteousness. And, and I would call these two people the, the religious and the ah-religious. And the religious is very easy. As a matter of fact, the Bible actually gives us a very good example of a, a religious person who does not hunger and does not thirst for righteousness in Luke 18, 9 through 14, which I'd like to read real quick. It's it's very small parable that Jesus delivers to his disciples and other people that are there that really need to hear this message that Jesus delivers in, in Luke 18, 9 through 14. So listen to this. He, Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax... Uh, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, and I'm sure he, you know, in this parable, he probably went on and on and on about all the great things that he was doing. And the verse 13 transitions to the tax collector, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus tells them the condition of these two men. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the, the tax collector, the one who beat his breast, this man went down to his house justified, that is, made right before God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the parable that Jesus gives his, his people. Those whom Jesus are speaking to through this parable have no hunger or desire for righteousness, because look at verse 9. And well, I don't know, if, is Luke? Oh, it is up there. Look at verse 9 if you can. I'll read it to you again anyways. In verse 9 it says, they trusted, they trust, yeah, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They believed that they were a good person. They believed they had righteousness. There was no hunger and desire for it because they believed themselves to already be in possession of it. This is the religious person that has no hunger, no thirst for righteousness. And to the person who believes that they will enter into the glory of God, because they're a good person. And, and how many people in our culture today believe this very thing? How many people believe, as a matter of fact, oftentimes when I ask people, 
I, I've told people in my gospel community church, I kind of have like a, I don't know if it's like a cheesy or like kind of like a pickup line into the gospel or whatever, but I always, I say, have you ever heard the Christian message? That's, that's kind of like my lead in, I guess. And uh, if people say, oh yeah, I think I kind of, and I say, well, well, what is, what do you think it is? This is, this is always, always what I get. Basically, if you're a good person, you're going to get to heaven. It, like 99% of the time, I only had one person ever actually give me the gospel because his father was a Baptist preacher. Not a believer, but his father was a Baptist preacher. This is like what 90%, probably even more of the world thinks that Christianity is. If you're a good enough person, you get into heaven. And worse than that, most people just believe, if I'm a good person, I will, God will usher me into the kingdom of heaven. They will, according to Jesus in this parable, not be justified. Why? There's no desire for righteousness in such people because they think they already have it. And to this, it may not seem that bad on the face of it, but to stand before God in such presumption, to say in all your sin and what you've done in this life, to stand before him and say, I deserve to be in here because I'm a good person. Well, I'm better than this person. I bet 90% of, uh, of Americans probably believe at this point that the only person in hell is maybe Hitler, maybe. Um, it, it's not a very popular idea. And what I would ask, one question that I would ask is, are, are people who believe such a thing, are they more righteous than someone like the prophet Isaiah? If you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, uh, he, he did many, uh, many good things, but also considering his life, like God was speaking audibly to him and commissioning him to go and deliver a message to his people. And so he is delivering God's message in boldness to both power and peasant alike. And I would ask, are you more righteous than this person? And I only ask because Isaiah, who to some would see this man as being a very righteous man. I mean, Isaiah says, looking at his own good works before God, and he calls it filth. He says it's, it's worthless. It's garbage. It's basically, it's disgusting. Isaiah 64, 6. If Isaiah sees all the good that he's able to produce, as worthless in obtaining salvation. Why do so many presume upon their own goodness that it will usher them into the kingdom of heaven? So many people compare themselves to other. They consider themselves uh, uh, good enough. They are presuming upon their own righteousness. They don't hunger. They don't thirst for it. And because of this, they're not blessed. The other person is the awe religious person. Or you, you could say, it's not always necessarily this category, but you could say the atheist, the person that does not believe in God, does not believe in good, no ultimate sense of morality. There's no good, there's no right, there's nothing. They don't hunger or thirst for righteousness for a different reason, and it's because they don't believe it exists. There is no such thing as right and wrong. All the pain, all the suffering that we've endured as humans throughout the ages is absolutely and irrevocably without purpose. There's no meaning behind it. Righteousness is irrelevant. What ultimately matters is whatever you can do now to escape the existential dread of your meaningless existence for the illusion of what Jesus offers his people in these passages when he promises them that they will be blessed, as he promises satisfaction in all the things where people experience lacking. This condition, the Bible actually has something to say about this condition as well. And to some, this may cause great offense, but it's, this, this is the Bible. Oftentimes, it offends us. It offends me many times. So in Psalm 14.1, God says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this isn't meant to be some kind of nasty insult, but it's an adjective describing the futility of this kind of thinking. For many reasons, for many reasons, 
this line of thinking is, is completely vacuous. It's completely empty. It's, it's vapor. And this is especially true when we speak of righteousness. Because many unbelievers demean what, what Christians, what many of us would understand to be true righteousness, the righteousness of God and what he, he gives to us in his word as morally repugnant, as, as a bad thing. Like, this is bad that we believe this thing. I've even heard, I think, uh, we, were, we were in like a, Rick and I went to go to a, uh, we were giving like a testimony for somebody in our church, and actually the lawyer questioned us on what we were teaching the children on Sunday, trying to make it seem like we're the bad guys for what we're teaching. And it's so funny, you see so much of that in the world, like, Christians are evil for thinking these things. But in doing that, they're kind of pointing their finger in futility at the very thing that, uh, according to their understanding of the world, shouldn't even exist. This is what foolishness looks like. It's like a dog barking at the wind, or if you're familiar with Don Quixote, it's sort of a tilting at windmills, which is basically an English idiom that says to attack an enemy that, is that it doesn't even exist. It's not there. So these are the two types of people who lack a hunger for righteousness. One believes they already possess it. One believes it doesn't even exist. Now, in the same way that hunger is a sign of our physical health, hunger for righteousness is a sign of our spiritual health. Many, many of you are probably familiar with this, but in the last few weeks of our lives, and many people's lives, when they're sick, they're dying, one of the biggest symptoms they experience that doctors will see is a lack of, uh, lack of hunger. They will lose their appetite. As a matter of fact, I was just speaking to someone earlier about a custody case that we were, we were going through a couple years ago with our adopted daughter, and we had to leave our dog in the care of our neighbor while we were gone, and we ended up having to stay a little bit longer because literally the day before we were supposed to leave with our now adoptive daughter, we found out we're in this custody battle with the foster parents, which, which was so great. Um, and so we ended up having to extend it. I had to call my boss, let them know I need, I need more time. We had to pull out money. I had to talk to the neighbor and ask them to take care of our dog. The result of all this stress and panic you know, on us it was also a lot of stress, apparently, on that dog. It's kind of sad. It was the last dog that Nicole and I had left from, like, um, prior, eh, like, early college years. Like, we had the same two dogs since we lived in Vegas, and they kind of followed us from Reno and all the way up to Oregon. And the last year, we lost the other dog. And so this was, like, the last dog uh, we had. And through the stress of us just being gone, and it was Fourth of July weekend, he'd gotten very sick. And... Uh, this was a big symptom he had, was just a huge lack of hunger. We couldn't get him to eat. We couldn't get him to drink any water. And on like the third vet visit, when the doctor was literally about to go get the, uh, get the medicine to put him down, he seized up on the table and died right in front of me. Um, really sad. But this, this is what death looks like. There's, there's a lack of hunger. And a, and a professing believer, somebody who, who says, I am a Christian, I believe in the gospel, who no longer hungers for righteousness, this is a man or a woman on the brink of death. With, with a lack of hunger for God's righteousness, this is a sign of spiritual death. Righteousness does exist to the all religious, but to the religious, it, it doesn't originate in the hearts of men. Instead, it's a gracious gift of God given to those who recognize their need for it, like the tax collector in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. And for those who lack an appetite for it, they will starve and ultimately die in their sin, never having tasted the bread of life, whom Jesus refers to himself as in John 6, 35. 
He is the bread of life that doesn't just give life, but in, in John 6, 35, or in John 6, he continues on to say it gives eternal life. It's a life that never ends. It's an everlasting life. Rick even explored this a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago. Like it's, it's not just a, a kind of nice life or heaven one day, but it's, it's Jesus tells us he comes to give life abundantly. Even now, the kingdom of God is breaking through in our lives as we begin to uh, seek God's righteousness and grow in God's righteousness. Uh, in that passage in John 6, we see again that those who don't believe also have no need and will not be raised up on the last day. But what about those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, for those who are desperately hungry for something to be different in regard to who they are inside, there, there is something broken, there is something wrong inside them, and they recognize a brokenness in the world outside of them as well. For those who hunger for righteousness inside themselves and outside in the world at large, uh, it, it is a good thing that they experience hunger. The, while hunger expresses a need, the reason it's a good thing, and the reason why I would consider them blessed, as Jesus does in verse 6, is because of that last clause in verse 6, if you look with me in Matthew 5, 6. For they shall be satisfied. And, and the shall be satisfied, that's actually one word in the Greek. Uh, we, we, in our verbal system, use a lot of helping words. Like I say, I will go to the mall. We don't put case endings in English at the end of it. Um, and we say, I went to the mall. I'm talking about a past tense, something that happened. In Greek, they use case endings, so it's kind of smushed those three words in English. We're actually smushed into one word, but it's incredibly significant. In both languages, this verb is expressed in an important way when it talks about the satisfaction that Jesus, that God is bringing to those who hunger for righteousness. For one, it's in, it's in the indicative case. And for those who don't know, this is important because this is a declarative. This is like a truthful, factual statement that Jesus is giving to his people. It's also in the future. This is a promise. So it's a hopeful future expectation that Jesus' people will receive one day. And, and I hesitate to say this one a little bit, uh, but it's also in the passive voice. Not every single passive voice is like, oh, that's God working. But in this sense, I think it really is. It's not saying they shall obtain satisfaction. They hunger for righteousness. Well, one day, if they work hard enough, they might get it. It's saying they shall be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. For those of us that are familiar with the gospel, that is the gospel call. For those that are broken and recognize they have no righteousness in and of themselves that will help them stand before God, Jesus Christ came to live the perfect life and step in for your place to deliver his righteousness to you, to where you get his righteousness, he gets your sin. This is the great exchange that takes place at the cross, and now God sees you as having been perfectly righteous. So the, that lack, that hunger for righteousness that we desired was fulfilled through the life and work and obedience of Jesus Christ. And in his resurrection, we receive that righteousness so that we can stand before God fully justified. And, and just as God has been demonstrating time and time again, as you read throughout the scriptures, how in his power he is saving his people, so he will do in giving us the righteousness we need and also the righteousness that the world itself needs. It's not just us. You know, in Revelation 21.5, God says he's making all things new. Yes, he, he is working and making about, he's bringing about a new creation in his people. Paul talks about this. It, you, um, it was mentioned, it was briefly, we brought up 2 Corinthians 5, I think 20 through 21, uh, before the sermon started during worship. But if you go back just a little bit, Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, 
Um, he's, he's making us into new creations. He's doing a new work inside of us. But he's also bringing his righteousness to every single square inch of this earth. This is part of the gospel that people in the Old Testament were looking forward to even. It says the coastlands wait for his law. They're waiting for his righteousness to come like he is bringing it to this earth where he will be ruling and reigning, not just in our lives and our hearts, but also all over the world. This is one of the petitions in the Lord's prayer that God, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. We want you to rule. We, we're, we're tired uh, of all the rulers and, and the corruptness that's happening in the world. We want you to come and establish your rule and reign, not just in our lives and our hearts, but in the world at large. So that the, the righteousness that we seek in the world, when we see the brokenness, will be fulfilled and satisfied by God's reign. In the very same sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, when we move forward just a little bit, Jesus also speaks of what hunger in our relationship to God should look like on a daily basis. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 11, Jesus teaches us to come to God asking him daily for our daily dose of bread. And I think this is a prayer for absolutely physical uh, sustenance. Me and Nicole often pray that God would meet our financial needs, that he would help us provide for the needs of our children. Amen. But I think there's also a spiritual sustenance that Jesus is commanding us to go to God seeking every day, that we would live in the grace of God continually. And without a hunger for the bread of life, we will all perish. And this is why Jesus is calling us to remember the gospel call. That's why we do this every single Sunday at Gospel Community Church. If there's ever a Sunday where the gospel is not preached from the pulpit, then something has gone wrong. And even in our gospel community groups, we're pointing one another back to the gospel. We're not seeking to be good advisors and giving people good advice when they have problems. While there's certainly a place for that, we hope to bring the good news of the gospel to, every, to bear on every single situation that we're going through throughout the week. This is why community is so important. It's great to hear a sermon on Sunday uh, and, and then go home, but sometimes it takes a little bit more application and, and pressing through one another and living in community. And so, I, I mean, I highly encourage, if, you, if you're not in a GCC group, I would hi- highly encourage you to go back. I'm excited to meet with mine later and just dive deeper in and have DJ press me on, on how I'm growing in the gospel. I mean, we, the men and the women split off and separately and we press one another and are we hungry for righteousness? How are we growing? How can we pray for one another to grow in these things? And the men get real. You know, we, we separate and we, we dive into some of the stuff. And I, so that's, that was a little sidetrack, but highly encourage gospel community groups. This is something that we constantly need to be reminded to. We constantly lose our hunger. We constantly think that maybe we can obtain righteousness. Maybe I'm the hero of the story. And it's so easy because so much of what we watch on TV, it's all about, you know, the main protagonist, the hero. And we love it because we want to project ourselves onto it. We want to be the hero. That's why I think the superhero movies are so popular. In, in some sense, we're living vicariously through their lives. I want to be the hero of the story. When uh, my wife would tell you that's not the case. I'm not the hero of our home <laughs> in, in many ways. You know, I constantly fail and need the righteousness of Jesus. So without a hunger for the bread of life, we will perish. And, and speaking of perishing, I just turned 33 a couple days ago. And you know, I, I bet some people would say, you know, that's not, that's not that old. And I see some smirks from a couple of Google in the crowd that I know are a little bit older than me. Um, but it could be relatively long, young. Um, it's actually half the life that my father and his brother live. So technically, genetically speaking, I might be about halfway to meeting the Lord. Um, <laughs> I've made a little bit better health decisions, but we'll see. A lot of that is genetics. I still remember a lot of the, the strength 
of my youth, especially when I was like in high school and doing football, basketball and track, and then even going to the military and doing something like air assault school, which is, they say is like the toughest 11 days in the army. And so I remember all that stuff. And now my back like hurts really bad when I go to pick up one of my kids. Um, and it, it's at some point, while I, while I do remember that, at some point, regardless of how hard you train your body, it will become weaker and weaker. Regardless of how hard you train, no matter what kind of Bowflex you buy. I don't remember, does anybody remember the old Bowflex commercials where the guy's like, I'm 40 years old and I'm in the best shape of my life. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. It, it doesn't matter how hard you train. Your body will become weaker and weaker and weaker and eventually it will die. I think another beautiful part of the gospel, and there's, there's many beautiful aspects to it. I think another beautiful part is that Christians can still d- grow daily. There's still a way in which we can constantly grow continually in the grace of God into the image of Christ. Jesus is the bread of life that gave life, but it's also giving life. Life now in the spirit is one of continual maturity where we're still, actually, we're still growing. We're still seeking to grow and be more and more like Christ every day, seeking that righteousness. We grow in preparation for the life to come and in preparing others for the very same thing. Not as a means of obtaining salvation, but in preparation for the great adventure that lies ahead. If you, if you look inside yourself and you find that you're empty of righteousness, that is, you're not, you are not good and need a foreign righteousness that you know you could never obtain, if you, if you look at the brokenness of our world and long to see every wrong made right, if you're in either of these two camps, which I, if you've lived for more than, you know, 10 or 15 years, you've probably seen both of those things. You've seen failure in your own life and you've seen failure in the world at large. I would say, come to Christ and be satisfied. Come to Christ and be satisfied. There is no purposeless evil. And there is a point to all this pain. In closing, briefly, I want to say that hunger for righteousness is a sign of health. I want to remind you of that again. Hunger for righteousness is a sign of health. Hunger for it in ourselves. And the world around us is exactly where I believe God wants our heart to be. Longing for righteousness, seeing the lack of it inside of ourselves and seeking the righteousness of Christ, seeing the brokenness of the world and seeking the righteousness of God to finally come and rule and reign is exactly where I believe God wants our hearts to be. And the great hope for those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ is that we will be satisfied. The last clause in verse 6. Those who, those who hunger it, those who thirst for it, shall be satisfied. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you in all, all these exhortations in the Sermon on the Mount. Every single need we have in, in every ounce of brokenness, you have brought some fulfillment. While it may feel as though we may be lacking Uh, different things throughout this life. The truth is that the ultimate hope of the promise of the gospel is that you're bringing all these things to fulfillment. You haven't left us in these conditions, whether we're mourning, uh, whether we're poor in spirit, whether we're broken inside, that you have brought fulfillment for us, God. You have satisfied us. And we thank you for that, God, and we praise you for that. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.